This is A Black Woman's Journey, where we create space for better health and professional outcomes for Black women. A Black Woman's Journey is a quarterly podcast in three parts, expert advice, turning advice into action, and wellness kit. This is where we stop editing our authentic selves. This is where we share information we wished we had known sooner. This is a selfless and a selfish act. This is where we focus on ourselves first. This is A Black Woman's Journey. In this, the final episode of our first season, we welcome a special guest host, Jennifer Fife from Random House. She and I speak with Antonio Michael Downing, author, musician, and activist. Downing grew up between Southern Trinidad, Northern Ontario, Brooklyn, and Kitchener. His 2010 debut novel, Molasses, was published to critical acclaim. In 2017, he was named by the RBC Taylor Prize as one of Canada's top emerging authors for nonfiction. We caught up with him at the Vancouver Writers' Fest to talk about grandmothers, music, and belonging, centered around his second novel, Saga Boy, My Life of Blackness and Becoming. My dearly departed Doreen Carlotta Reese of Barbados sends greetings to your Miss Exley. I think we are both, oh yes, I think we are both still living off an old lady's prayers. Um, There was a lot of deep resonance there for me around notions of the super hope human um, grandmother, the superhuman matriarch who murmurs in the dark praying for all of their children and grandchildren. I've lived that, I've been there, who Mm -hmm. pummels you with notions of God and education being the only way out. Uh, Tell me more about your grandmother and how she figures in your life even today. Yeah, most definitely. And I I mean, Barbados, just down the road, we probably family. (laughs) I love it, I love it. My grandfather was actually born in Trinidad. Yeah, uh, no, it's, it's, I mean, I feel like, I feel like because of geographical proximity, Grenada, Barbados, and Trinidad have a, have a common kind of bond. And, and when I'm on those islands, I always feel like I'm home. So, um, so I, I salute, I, I can feel how the experience could be similar. Um, yeah, I, you know, she's, um, I thought she was important and then I wrote the book and I realized she was more that was a a very porpoise word for what she actually was to me she was foundational she was um she was the art she was she was the architect really of not so much my life but how I related to my life how I showed up in my life and I didn't know that I was with her you know in the in the in the in the rainforest in South Trinidad down south as they just say and <laughs> and and a one road village and it's just me her and my older brother and I just clung to her for dear life and I was always by her side and while I was there you know imagine this woman was born in 1905 in a British mm-hmm. colony and they weren't like the Canadian British colony where it's like, okay, 
you know, we have a governor general, but you guys just do what you want. Um, it was like, no, we didn't have a governor general. We just had a governor. And, and most of her life, she lived under that, that those circumstances where there's no voting, there's no member of parliament, there's no laws, there are decrees and, and you have no agency, you have no power. And so it's a hard life, especially for a black woman. And, and of course, the only way any of us survived was because of black women like her. Mm. Who, you know, and, and we know how that story goes. And so what she was teaching me as I was clinging to her skirt was the tool, her toolbox, mm. or as they say in basketball, um, her bag, you know, <laughs> like when, when Kevin Garnett pulls out a hook shot, they're like, oh, he went into his bag. Well, she went into her bag and I witnessed it. I witnessed her, um, praying in the morning before the sun rises for all her scattered offspring so mm -hmm. that is shaking the room with with her with with the thunder of her emotions I witnessed her uh singing morning noon and night and and almost transmutating the the misery into meaning and yes. I watched her um I watched her like I, I, she read her Bible. She lived by the word and, and, and whether you're a believer or not, the power of the word was really what she was teaching me and, mm. and her eyes were bad. So she taught me how to read at a very young age so that I could be her eyes. And so I'm seeing all of this and I just think, oh, this is just life. I don't know anything else. But later on when she was not there, all these lessons became the ways that I moved through life, the singing, the mm -hmm. testifying, the, the, the transmutating through song, the, mm -hmm. the, the use of the word to give life meaning mm -hmm. is how I existed. And, and quite frankly, it doesn't really feel like she left. I feel like I could close my eyes at any given point and she'll tell me what she thinks. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about because my grandmother has been gone for well over a decade. And it feels like when I'm in distress, mm -hmm. I had a health scare about a year ago. Yeah. I came this close to calling 911. You know who I called on? My grandmother. Wow. And I felt her in the room. I heard her consoling me. Yeah. yeah. I fell asleep. I woke up the next morning and I felt fine. She's not gone. She has just changed yeah. her physical we, shape. And we don't, we're not always paying attention. And I keep getting, people remind me, they, you know, they tell me like, whoa, something must have really been help, like helping you through that moment where it, everything could have fallen apart. And they tell me that, you know, I feel like you're protected by something and or things happen and people say, well, you know, how did that person, how did you, that person end up in jail and you end up, you know, talking to Kim Allison Fraser on the on, on E1 Entertainment? I'm like, I don't know. It must living be off, living an, off old... an old lady's prayers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's what's up so yes and for me the challenge in life is just to remember that to wake up with that to go through the day with that and to remember that because it's a great source of strength and solace and calm 
to me because I because otherwise, you know, what have we got? What have we got out here? You know, so to me, she was your most enduring love um, throughout the the book. That was the Mm. message that I got. She was your enduring love. She she is probably the only woman that you have ever really loved and felt loved by. And I found that aspect of it very, very touching because um, I wasn't fortunate enough to to know my grandmother as well as you knew your um, grandmother. But Mm -hmm. I have that same feeling about my own mother. Mm -hmm. She is is my strength. And um, what I loved about, excuse me, what I loved about um, the earlier part of your story was that I grew up in Shepherd's Bush. Um, my parents are from the Caribbean, Dominica, but I grew up in Shepherd's Bush around Trinidadians. <clears throat> and your description of food took me on this journey that was making me salivate. I, I live on the west coast of Vancouver. It's very hard to find Polari. It's very hard to find <laughs> yes. Chana. It's very hard to find Ancha. And it, it just took me all the way back to the Rosses and the Gibbs being at their home when they were cooking the things that they were cooking. Mm. And I could almost smell it. I think your use of language, describing all the things that you love is the, is the lasting memory for me from this book. Well, they say to describe is to, is to, is to, um, is to, is to make sacred, is to praise. And so I, 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 and the food, you know, I was lucky enough to be a judge for the uh, um, CBC short nonfiction contest this year. And I really loved it. It was, I read, I think, you know, 400 plus uh, short nonfiction up to 2000 words. And, and so after a while you look for patterns and you see patterns. And one of the great patterns I saw was people, especially immigrant people, or people who had lost people using food to reconnect to that lost time and place and person over and over and over I saw that and for over many cultures and many demographics and many backgrounds that the beauty of doing a contest reading for that contest like that is you see I literally read for from every province every gender, sexual orientation, color, demographic. Like I literally got it to, to sit, pull up a chair by the fire with them and really kick it with them on their level. And this food as a, as a, as a philosopher's stone that, like, that, that initiates and catalyzes the, the, the connections we have with, with people in place, that theme kept coming back again and again and again. And so I really, um, you know, it's, it's interesting because it's like, I, I, I had to rethink my relationship with food after, after writing the book. And I wrote it, I didn't think a lot about it writing and I just wrote what, what was important, but in reading for the, for the audio book, which is, which is a whole experience. Cause I sing all her songs and, and do all the accents. It's funny. <laughs> it's like I my- did the audio book and Jen did, Jen <laughs> read did the, the book and I did the audio. And oh. I'm going to have to listen. Yeah. I'm going to have to listen to the audio because I must admit, even reading some of the, the, 
the hymns when you when you actually read the words and then you realize what the hymn is yeah. oh gosh i mean how great thou art is yeah. my mother's favorite hymn and yeah. every time i read lines from that i was choked up yeah I, absolutely i was in it was hard like doing the audiobook and just singing singing these songs like i would just break out in song i wouldn't read it because i'm just like well it's a hymn um and it was so great but when i read about the food in those times i realized how, that's what really galvanized those experiences because it was almost like i activated the 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 sense of smell and, and where a lot of our memories are attached to the sense of smell, um, you know, and when and and it was like I was back there, you know, watching her uh, turn the, the ladle in the huge pot full of sorrel or, or watching, you know, by the sea, watching them put some pepper sauce in a in a in a in in a in some seafood in a in a in a in a, in a, in a I'm sorry in a Bajiol? What's that? Bajiol, is that how you pronounce it? The fish with the, like, it's like a ceviche. Yeah, and, but, and I'm not thinking, I'm thinking of the, I don't know why it's not coming to me. It's a shellfish, like a mussel, conk. basically, conch. And they just crack it open and put the pepper right on the side of the road. And wow. like, I can see it in my head. And, or just uh, doubles and seeing them put the chana and the doubles and, the, and it's all fluffy. And I'm like, and, and it's like, that's my childhood. That's home. That is home right there. I actually ordered um, roti, tiger malt, bajiol, and some sorrel when I was binging your audiobook two weekends ago. <laughs> yeah, that's, I, I hear, that's what I hear. I hear people either, they, they, they do two things. They start getting the food, they either make it if they can, or they buy it, or they go get some. <laughs> And they start listening to the music. They start looking up Michelle Montano or what it, David Rada or whatever soca they like to listen to. And so it's-, it's I, so I drank rum. What's that? <laughs> I drank rum listening. Right, well, that's what I would do. <laughs> so we talk a lot about food and music and blackness. To me, what it comes down to is is a sense of belonging. And honestly, I'm shocked that you and I haven't crossed paths. I live in Vancouver now, but mm -hmm. I lived in Toronto for many, many, many years. When you talk yeah. about the Sound Academy and Bay Street and the Entertainment District, I lived on King Street West and how brothers greet each other in such a specific way right. in Toronto. Yeah. What do you think it is about Toronto that makes it so, for me, the feeling of home is so different between Toronto, Brooklyn, and say the Caribbean. On Brooklyn too, we would have been neighbors. I lived yeah. with my Rasta fiance in a brownstone above a storefront church on, okay. Hals on Halsey. On Halsey. Between Nordstrand and Troop. What? We were neighbors. <laughs> both times yes. <laughs> we've been neighbors yes <laughs> if i if i move to vancouver next year i'll let you know <laughs> no, hopefully we will cross paths at that point in time yeah yeah i mean about toronto in particular i i feel like just that i feel like there's collections of black communities right it's the sense of community right 
when you talk Brooklyn and Bed-Stuy, it's like, that's the great biggest collection of Black neighborhoods in America at the time. For a long time, it was. And it, I think it still is. It's like millions of people. Um, and, and for me, it was like, when I got there, it was like, it wasn't like, oh, well, you're Black. And that became the dominant thing in the narrative. And I'm sure you've experienced this, Jennifer, in, in, in London, where it's kind of like, hey, if, you, if we're all Black, then we got to think of something else. Like, who are you? Like, what do you love? Like, what is your character? Like, what do you like to do? How do you talk? What do you like to do? It's something beyond just the obvious looking at you and you're black and that is the beginning and end of the story and so I think that's what I found in Toronto in, in particular like my uh you know I had some great Caribbean either born in the Caribbean or descended from Caribbean parents um Dion Fitzgerald the the, the great painter um and his cousin Slay and and uh Jeff the writer um, and this crew of us, and we were, and, and for the first time, my friends were black men. And so suddenly I wasn't, it's like when you are the minority in North America, for example, you're always in conversation with white society, always. You're always translating yourself to white society. But suddenly when, when I was surrounded and all my friends were black and they were cool and they were artistic, they weren't trying to tell me, hey, you gotta listen to this music to be down with us or you gotta talk this way. They were interested in just blackness being fully expressed in all the creative ways it could. And, and so they were like, yeah, let's play guitars and play rock music. Rock music is black. Let's sing the blues. The blues is black. How come they didn't tell us that? You know, let's do some hip hop because that's black too. And how can we get all this blackness out and enjoy it? And it was like, it wasn't like I had to translate myself. And, and I think that sense of community, you know, or if you grow up out east in Halifax, like, you know, or, or in Turo, Nova Scotia, uh, Turo, New Brunswick, or in these small, like, um, eastern communities of Black people, is community, is family. It's the sense that you are, you have a sense of home, which is the people and the food and the music and the rum the culture yeah. that's what you that's what I think Toronto offers and Toronto offers it in a way where you know where we can just be on our thing and do our thing and you can kind of forget that you're actually existing in a world that you have to you have to be in some kind of you have to translate yourself because you know if you you know white folks don't have to do that right they kind of show up how they show up Mm -hmm. right and but, the expectation is that you will understand them right, right. Yeah. the expectation is of course you're gonna get me like as a musician it's like I was talking to uh some uh, uh did an interview um with uh with um at the Elma Combo for this series that's coming out and, and played a show in an interview and in the interview they said well um you know how can you 
how can you how can you change the culture of music in Canada? And I was just like, you know, I'm always trying to I'm always having to be a version of me for them, but they're never in my world. It, like the room is never designed for us. And even the events that me and my crew throw in Toronto, you know, we take all the music and, and we center it. So, you know, we take Afrobeats and Guam and Kwaito from Africa and Dancehall and Soka, and we bring the people and we go, look, everybody's welcome, but this is about you. Mm. And, and I think you show up differently when you don't have to explain yourself or, or translate yourself. You can just be you. And I think it's, it's an immensely powerful thing and we don't get that experience nearly enough. I, I, I used to, working on Bay Street, I used to go to Onyx Barbers, which is right across from the Eaton Center. So black barbershop. And I would go when I know they'd be busy and I'd have to wait 90 minutes to get my cut. <laughs> and I, after the fourth time, I was like, why are you doing this? And then I realized... I just like sitting in a room with black people, with black men. Even if I'm not talking to them, just hearing them talk and seeing them be comfortable and, and hearing their banter and their jokes was like, oh, it's like putting down a weight you didn't know you were carrying. Well, I love that. Um, just cycling back in terms of like relationships and I love Jen how you mentioned that um it seems like Antonio Michael like your grandmother was your one true love wow what or does that that resonate yes that's it yeah no one's ever said that to me and and as the takeaway you got from the book that was a very powerful thing and and in in I can tell you as a grown man like struggling with the, the 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 purgatories and pitfalls of modern dating that was a powerful thing to hear so one of my favorite lines in the book is amy was a swan and al was a player jeez facts yeah so as a, a divorced woman of a certain age who's also dipping her toe into the dating world and carefully and slowly because I know it's terrible out there what are you and and why where are you more of a swan today are you kind of a hybrid how do you think that observing your father's relationships with women has influenced your approach to to family and relationships hmm. yeah that is profound I think that the problem with my upbringing was I, my grandmother, well, the problem slash solution was that my grandmother was my model for everything. So, but she was an old lady, so she didn't have like a romantic relationship. She had, there was Mr. Stanley from down the way. He would hang out a lot. <laughs> In hindsight, <laughs> they clearly were like, you know they clearly liked each other but um but I as a kid I didn't see like the mom and the dad and the navigating the relationships and how you do affection and how you do romance and how you do like uh arguing 
but 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 preserving the but arguing in a constructive way and how you do making up I, like I just never saw any of that. I got like Psalm 27 and a whole lot of him and the whole Anglican hymn book. That's what I got. And so <laughs> so for me, it was kind of like going into it without a map and seeing my dad. I was just kind of like like almost everything with my dad, I was like, okay, we're not going to do that. <laughs> so I more, rather than getting a model to follow, I got a model to avoid. Um, but then how, where do you learn the skills to do that? And, and it's not just me. I think, I think, I think most human beings are not, whether you have your parents who grow up with them, you, we're not really prepared for this stuff. Like, like you got to take, you want to drive a car, you got to take like a whole course. <laughs> you got to pass an exam. That is way more prep than we get to, you know, have a relationship, get married, have children. So true. So which way more consequential. And so yeah. what it's been for me is I think when, when you, when you, when I healed myself, then I could show, then how I showed up in relationships changed. And, and I think the, the journey of, from my grandmother's model, which gave me the tools to heal myself, and my dad's model, which gave me the motivation, mm. I, I was always on this path. And a lot of times it was about, a lot of times relationships with women were really important to that healing. Because again, like I, I'm just keyed to be, to have the most important relationship in my life be a woman a strong woman a woman that's cut from my grandmother's cloth but I didn't always honor that mm -hmm. at times I thought that the more I understood myself and the more I understood why that was important then I looked for different things right I looked for for that spiritual weight I looked for that I looked for that, um, the appreciation for words and song and what they mean. I, I looked for that faith mm. and, and I didn't before, before I understood, I was just kind of flying without a map. And so where am I now? I think that, yeah, I think it's hard to say where are any of us at any point? Cause, um, but I would say that I'm, I'm certainly in, in regards to my dad's journey. I think I'm certainly more grounded, more aware of what my, my inner, the inner motions of my heart, the pitfalls, the, the challenges, more prepared to own it rather than avoid it. And, and, and I think that means I have a shot, but you know, like we're all on that journey, right? We're all, we're all discovering and, 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 and life is, is not for the, I mean, faint it takes, of heart. No. yeah, it's and not it, for it, the faint of heart. <laughs> and it's, it's a, it's a, um, it's an ever changing as you age, it's an ever changing, ever evolving yeah. thing, right? Yeah. I thought I had put a post-it note in one of these descriptions of your parents and it must have fallen out because I've spent most of my time reading your book in bed. I have, there, there is a description and I don't know if you can, if you can remember where it is, mm -hmm. where, where your, your father turns up for Christmas 
um, in Brooklyn. And that's the first time that they had seen each other for a long time. Yeah. And you, when I read this little bit where you said that you observed them in the kitchen, circling each other, it yeah. was the use of and blowing on each other's embers. Yes. Wow. Yeah. That, that gave me so much pause for thought because I thought about my ex-husband yeah. this is this is what he would do if i gave if i gave him the opportunity you know yeah. <laughs> yes. he keep coming around and blowing on my embers and trying to keep that love that warmth that i had for him alive i mean honestly antonio i was like wow i read that three times because oh, it gave God. me such pause for thought and it hit me right in the gut i thought that is a good summing up of that experience. Yeah, I mean, and that's my, like, I'm 24 and and I've never been it under the same roof as both my mom and my dad. I barely know my mom. I kind of know my father. And and they've always been like, like, like a wisp of smoke blowing through my childhood, I think is how I describe it in the book. And and here I am. And and this is the real thing. It's like it's like you were you were to suddenly stumble upon Adam and Eve in the garden. And here I am. And, and I'm like, my goodness, they're not only human, they're not only both here, but they're doing this dance of courtship, of rekindling, of like and and the incredible amounts of vulnerability and and familiarity that it's all that's that's knotted up but it's just slowly just unlocking in this tender sort of motion and yeah it was a heck of a thing to whisper and to witness and and it just stayed with me like those you know but I think the book is very much about those moments that, that just blaze themselves into your consciousness and then and then I'm just trying to keep up with them I'm trying to bring them to life and then I'm trying to speak something coherent about what they mean but in truth they just stand on their own as as their own thing like like really those moments of of memory that just galvanize themselves in, in to me and and, you know, that's, that's really how I view, you know, them. Like when I think of them, when I think of my grandmother, I think of myself, there are images, there are these moments, there are these instants, and that's a pretty big one. And, uh, you know, like you say, you have to give them access. <laughs> <laughs> she made that mistake, <laughs> or maybe they both did. <laughs> but, you know, for and for a while, they really did. I mean, ha they really did live in this fairy tale where childhood sweethearts who have all these kids and they're separated by continents for 20 years. And and no, 20 plus years because they separated the year I was born and and suddenly it's all just happening again. And I mean, I wish Gloria I could, and Al. Yeah, I, I wish that. I could say I mean Gloria, I wish I could say happily ever after, but yes, Gloria and Al, legendary, like legendary humans. And I try to make them as big in the book and as epic as they are in my life. 
to me because I I see them for the human beings they are, but I also see them um, for the for the epic, larger than life personalities that they are, and and that's such a that's that's where the beauty lies between those two those two realities is that they are larger than life, but they are only human. Seeing as we were neighbors, when you reconnected with your mom and dad and when the whole family came back together in Brooklyn, mm -hmm. what, was the, what was the soundtrack of that holiday like? Like, what were you listening to? What was playing? Because in Brooklyn, there's this thing, right? There's the public space where there's music pumping from Hot 97, yeah. WBLS, and there's like the street music. And then there's a the music that you listen to at home with your family at Christmas. So what right. was the soundtrack? Yeah, well, we were listening to Parang in uh, like like Trini Christmas music in the in the um at home. Um no, no, not that that was um no, I'm sorry. We do sing Parang, but that was later. In that summer, it was like wow, like it's a lot of hip hop because like my mom has a lot of boys and it's Brooklyn, so it's like you know, everybody came up right there. So it was a lot of um, Nas's Illmatic and, and Biggie and, um, and everybody was freestyling. I think Naughty by Nature was big that summer. Um, Mary J. Blige. And yes. I think that was the summer that, um, that my love. life came out. And my we life. were like, yeah, we were just, we were just banging that nonstop, but um, but great call, great call. Normally, I would think of it. I think of life in terms of what music was I listening to at the time. But yeah, that was a it was a beautiful summer. It was a beautiful summer. Was, mm -hmm. Everything seemed possible. What was life like before music? Do you do you remember such a time? I, I was chatting with a friend, and I was like, "Music is life." Like I can't think of a time in my life when there isn't some sort of song or music that goes along with it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, totally. There isn't any music before. There isn't any life before music. For me, I I woke up with my grandmother singing like when I could yeah, like before I could even recognize my own face I could recognize my grandmother singing mm -hmm. and and soca music and reggae music and then you go to the church and everybody's singing and clapping and everybody's beating drum and you pass the Hindu temple and they're beating tassa and they and they and they and they're playing and they sing in over there and and at Christmas, it was like the quattro and all the Venezuelan instruments and they're playing and, and they're singing um, Parang. And yeah, there was never any, like I would recognize all of those things before I could even recognize myself, before I was even conscious of me being anything. And so, you know, I was just steeped in it. And then when I realized you could do it, then it was just like, well, that was just, it was on. Amazing. I remember that scene when um, Al bought you all the instruments you're living with. It wasn't Amy. It was, what was the, <laughs> I can't remember the, your other stepmom's name. Her name was, ha well, in the book is Haley. Haley. That's not Haley. actually her real name, but yeah. It's Haley. 
yeah <laughs> I felt I was so sad like I know the family broke apart but I was like but what about his instruments yeah <laughs> me too and that was a big part of me why it was so hard to be like when I was in New York and Cambridge especially I didn't have any access and I wasn't playing in bands um, in the school band. So I basically got disconnected from music for a minute. And that was, um, yeah, that was hard. That was hard. What kind of home have you created for yourself now that you have this, all this control of, of, of your life? Because there is one scene um, where one chapter where you said, I just want a home. I just yeah. want to come home and feel anchored. And yeah. um, and th that resonated with me because that's how I feel about anywhere that I live. If I always said, if I lived in a cardboard box, I'd paint the walls. You yeah. know? I, I, I have to feel anchored. That's how I feel whole. So what kind of home have you created for yourself? I believe that for me, home has always been built around the things I do and the ways I express myself. Um, and, and that really is just an expression of, of the sort of the inner world of my, of, of my heart. I think the truth is that our heart is our home. Because hmm. when, I, when I came to Canada and everything that you would think of as home was gone, suddenly, boom, grandmother, house, language, trini, music, food, even my brother went off to boarding school. It was all gone. Hmm. So if all these things that we define as our home can, can be, or, or as, as our identity and where we feel comfortable can be gone and I can still exist, then the truth of it must be that home is something else. And so what I found, I found home to be here in my heart, in my heart and the comfort and in the stories of who I was and, and in, the, and in the, the expressions of that, that was my home. And, and once I was comfortable and rooted in that, then I could show up anywhere and I'd just be me and I'd be comfortable. Even in a cardboard box, I would be comfortable. Right. So you were Dorothy. It was always within you. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, within all of us, isn't it? And, right. But, but, you know, I, I love art. I, I love being like I'm in an art gallery. Like there's paintings, several paintings in every room of my house. There is, there are instruments in almost every room of my house. Um, uh, there are books in almost every room of my house because you you know that's um that's but those are again expressions of of how I learned to see the world and in truth the gifts that my grandmother gave me of words and song and art and creativity um those are the things that make me feel grounded and rooted emotionally through all the trauma and pain in the book I found a lot of joy and I found a lot of humor and um that was my my takeaway it was a very enjoyable experience you know it's only black people if I when I do these things when I do interview like let's talk about the terrible things that happen I'm like look yeah sure but 
it's almost like there's so much fun and joy and creativity and language and 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 intimate moments and mm -hmm. and again well i mean maybe that's a great place to sum it up uh bringing myself back to um community and being and not having to translate yourself Being grounded emotionally and feeling like you have a place where you can be yourself is so essential for wellness and balance. This fall 2021, we focus on belonging with our wellness kit, which this time around is a mini candle. We're calling it Obachan. Obachan is Japanese for grandmother. So two key themes that we explored in this episode, butterfly pea essential oil and sweet pea both focus on really connecting and having a sense of belonging and how we connect with others in the world around us. The essences come together in a hand poured scented soy wax candle including a celestite crystal for understanding emotions and self-awareness in relationship to others. Check out our Instagram page and go to our website to find out how you can get your hands on one of the candles that makes up the wellness kit for fall 2021. My thanks to Antonio, Michael Downing, and Jennifer Fife for joining us on this, the last episode, I can hardly believe it, of the first season of A Black Woman's Journey. Follow us on Instagram at A Black Woman's Journey and join us next time on A Black Woman's Journey when we officially transition to the Entertainment One Podcast Network. Until then, be well, stay connected, stay grounded, and keep in touch. We'll see you here again soon.